Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And joining us today on the other side of the mic is our guest, Rob Alcorn, CEO of Clearpool. Today, we're going to be discussing how the crypto credit market is maturing and much more and how Clearpool is playing a role in that maturation and decentralized lending in general. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Do more with your crypto. Whether you're a crypto expert or a newcomer to the world of digital currencies, PayPal provides a secure and convenient platform for your crypto transactions. Start exploring new Web3 applications with peace of mind, knowing that PayPal has your back. Learn more and get started today at paypal.com slash crypto. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored in part by CleanSpark, America's Bitcoin miner. With CleanSpark, you can feel good about investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem because CleanSpark uses low-carbon energy for their Bitcoin mining data centers and is always optimizing their operations to increase energy efficiency and reduce e-waste, all while partnering with the communities they operate in. If you want to support the future of Bitcoin while also supporting the environment, visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more about the CleanSpark way. So Rob, walk us through that market maturity. How do we get from a nascent credit market in crypto that, you know, saw a massive blow up last year, there's a few small DeFi players, to then something much more mature with derivatives sort of on top, tradable products? How do we get to that point? So the first step, I think, is to attract those users in the first place. You know, you need to be KYC compliant, you need to be AML compliant. You know, that's not something that's really sort of existed so much in DeFi to date. And it becomes a little less decentralized in a way. It becomes what you would call permission DeFi. But I think this is where the institutions, this is what they need to see to be able to take that step. So that would be the first step. And then obviously you can start to scale the borrowing and lending. You know, we can introduce collateral as well into that. So you can have sort of under collateralized lending as well as uncollateralized. And then once you've built that and, and you've brought that sort of critical mass, I think the rest of it will fall into place. So, so build the term structure of interest rates, you know, because you'll have more data, more back data to do that. And then once you have that, the product sophistication can be built on top. So we need to attract the users that previously were mainly using the CFI lenders. I think that's happening. So I think that's something that we'll see play out over the rest of this year and into next year. And then once you have that, you have that critical mass, then the rest of it will kind of fall into place or at least be a lot easier to build, you know, those building blocks that are needed to ultimately get to the level of sophistication that, you know, borrowers and lenders have in, in traditional markets. So to what extent would you say last year's credit blow up was tied to the lack of product sophistication, a proper robust repo market, credit derivatives, these sort of the trappings of the traditional credit market. How much of the blow up was tied to that versus just, let's call it a lack of sophistication around risk management? Obviously, a lot of those tools are requisite for risk management, but I'm thinking more so just not understanding how to do proper like credit analysis. I think that was a large part of it. I think, you know, looking back and, you know, what we know now, 
I mean, it seems like, you know, basic risk management was severely lacking. But then, you know, if you have that product sophistication available, it makes risk management easier. So it's kind of a chicken and egg. But I think that the main problem of last year was still down to, you know, lack of, of basic risk management. And I think a lot of it also is, is transparency. So, you know, nobody really knew in the market who was lending to who. And, and I think you probably had, you know, some instances where one institution was borrowing and lending to another at the same time. And there was just a whole lot of risk and leverage building up, which nobody could really sort of, you know, understand. So transparency is something that, you know, that needs to be fixed and, and DeFi does do that. And I think, you know, when we talk about permission of DeFi, that's still going to be possible because although you might not be able to see the names of the companies that are transacting within a permission DeFi yeah. environment, still see the transactions that are going through. So you can understand, you know, where the leverage is, where the risk is. Yeah. Or at the very least, you can't have a situation like Three Arrows where you can borrow from one counterparty and then use those funds as collateral to then borrow from another counterparty. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. So if, if you look at the permissionless product that we have and how that performed last year, you know, it performed impeccably well. After each of the, sort of the major events, the, the price code continued to grow. But the reason is, is because, first of all, lenders realize that they can exit their position very quickly on clip or is very liquid. But also you can see all of the borrowers and exactly what they're doing with those borrowed funds. You can track it on chain. So people could see, you know, where the funds were flowing because of that transparency. And the end result there was that, you know, during FTX, we had around $150 million of loans on the protocol at the time. And that entire amount got autonomously unwound within about two days of the bankruptcy announcement. Nobody lost a penny. So you can see how much more efficient it is once you have that transparency in place. Walk me through how the two are connected. How does the transparency then sort of translate into this added efficiency that, you know, in this example, makes sort of lenders whole? Yeah, so those permissionless pools have an interest rate curve embedded within them. And what that means is that interest rates that are paid by borrowers received by lenders are determined through the amount of liquidity that the borrower is currently utilizing. Now, the curve is, is shaped in, in a unique way, which means that the lowest interest rate on the curve is found in 85% utilization. So effectively encouraging the borrowers to always remain around this area. And that means that there's always around 15% of liquidity remaining in the pool for lenders to withdraw. And so this is how we solve that problem of having no lockups for lenders. But of course, if you have a lot of lenders withdrawing at the same time, like during FTX, for example, it pushes the utilization higher. And when the utilization goes up, so does the interest rate, and it goes up quite steeply from 85% to 100. So this then encourages, uh, it can attract new liquidity from new borrowers to farm that additional yield. But in time, you know, when you're in volatile times, it really encourages the borrowers to repay and bring the utilization back down to the optimal level. What happened during FTX is that the lenders continued to withdraw. There was the scramble for liquidity across the market. And that led to the majority of the borrowers fully repaying their pools. So that mechanism worked very well in the permissionless environment. On the permissioned, it's going to be more fixed rate, fixed duration. 
But here you have, you know, obviously institutional borrowers and lenders. So that what we tend to see is that most of the lenders are doing their own risk assessment, their own credit risk assessment on, on the borrowers. And of course, then they'll take a decision on how long they want to lend, who to, and then how long. So the product is slightly different on the permissionless side. So they're not really linked. But having said that, we'll probably see, you know, some of the, the same borrowers on the permissionless side also active in, in the permission side as well. Got it. So obviously the, you know, age of under collateralized lending and crypto is over. To what extent has that opened up, you know, new business for Clearpool? Obviously, traders, you know, they want to put down as little collateral as possible to be capital efficient. Have you seen a growth in business? It seems like, you know, TVL is still a bit low. How do you sort of build out that book? Yeah, we still see that demand from trading firms. The demand fell a little bit post FTX. I think obviously some of them were affected by that. And and in general, you know, those type of borrowers are not seeing the same opportunities in the market as they would perhaps in a bull market. So that kind of you know suppresses the demand a little bit. But I would say that the demand to borrow, that profile of borrower is still there. We actually launched three new borrowers into our ecosystem so far this year. And recently we've had you know, quite a spike in, in liquidity provided. We started at a fairly low base after FTX, but over the last couple of months, we've seen like a four or 500% increase in liquidity provided. So yeah, whilst DeFi in general, I think, you know, hasn't seen a huge amount of growth this year, it is heading in the right direction. So I think, you know, the demand from the borrowers is still there effectively. I think where more of the concern is, is on the lending side, of course, you know, many people would have got burned last year and, and now, you know, you have that now cautious approach to coming back to the market. But we do see lenders coming back, of course, you know, we wouldn't have had that increase if that wasn't happening. So yeah, I think that there are, you know, some institutions out there that, are, you know, that still have appetites. And I think we're also starting to see some sort of high net worth and retail flows come back as well. Attention crypto holders. Moving crypto is seamless and secure with PayPal. With support for Bitcoin, ETH, and more, you can buy, sell, hold, send, and check out with crypto at millions of shops online. Not to mention PayPal now supports the ability to send to and from external wallets and charges you nothing when transferring between PayPal and Venmo crypto wallets. Whether you're exploring the world of Web3 or hobbling on for another day, PayPal is the convenient and simple way to convert dollars into crypto. PayPal has your back. They work to protect your financial info and give you confidence every step of your crypto journey. Now's the time to make your crypto move. Get started today at paypal.com slash crypto terms and conditions apply. Here's a message from our sponsor, CleanSpark. CleanSpark is a NASDAQ-listed company that mines Bitcoin. Basically, they build and operate data centers with tens of thousands of computers that help secure Bitcoin, making it more reliable and secure for anybody, anywhere to use. These computers require a lot of energy, but that's why CleanSpark predominantly uses low-carbon energy to power their machines. But that's not all. They care about the communities where their data centers are located. They create jobs, donate to schools and community centers, and revitalize aging electricity grids in rural parts of America. 
They aren't just a Bitcoin miner. They're one of the most efficient and sustainable Bitcoin miners in America. Visit www.plainspark.com to learn more. In terms of the credit analysis that is conducted, right, leveraging Credora, what are some of the parameters there? What is it sort of sussing out that can get you comfortable to the point of not necessarily needing any collateral? So one of the main things they do is they look at the financial statements, so the balance sheet of the company, and then they look at all of the exchanges that that company is active on. So talking about a market maker, they're going to be active on most of the major exchanges. So they provide these read-only API keys, which allows Credora to then visualize the balance sheet in real time. They can see where the capital has been deployed and then calculate leverage, portfolio equity, and other metrics, which then go through their sort of like proprietary risk engine. And that enables them to come up with a risk score that translates into a number, sorry, to a letter as it does, you know, sort of traditional markets. So then we're able to present that. And then the higher maybe the risk score, the higher the interest rate or? Correct. Yeah. yeah. We, we introduced the credit spreads. Yeah. So a double A rated lender would be on a lower curve to that of, let's say, a double B rated. So walk us through maybe the product roadmap for Prime. Obviously, this is sort of, you know, kind of taking the relationship that you built out with Jane Street and replicating it across numerous parties as a permission. You know who you're borrowing against, you know who's in the pool, so that institutions feel more comfortable engaging with a platform like this. Yeah, that's correct. So, so there's, you know, there's a number of institutions who are kind of, you know, lined up to use it. You know, I would say that, you know, that interest kind of waned a little bit at the end of last year, or, or certainly pre-FTX, of course, we, you know, we had a lot of interest in the product, but there's a number of institutions that are lined up to use the product. So that's going to launch within the next probably two to three weeks. I think the first deals are going to come online in two to three weeks. The product itself is, is ready and has been audited. So then we just start to build out, you know, that user base. Ultimately, that really just involves having the institution go through a KYB process. We have a third-party provider for that. And once they're whitelisted, they can interact in Prime either as a borrower or a lender. Borrowers will create pools, select the asset they want to borrow and the terms of that pool. And then they will select from the other permission participants who they want to face. That could be all of them or a subset of them. And then those guys would receive a notification telling them this pool has been created by this borrower with these terms and effectively inviting them to fund it. So once we have that sort of critical mass of users signed up, you know, I think we'll start to see deals, you know, organically emerge within Prime. Of course, in the beginning, our team is sort of lining up those, those initial deals. So then later on, we'll introduce some additional functionality. Part of that will be collateral. So borrowers would be able to collateralize the loans on Prime. And then there'll be some additional functionality as well that we'll offer on there. And then we'll, we'll see how it goes. We want to get the feedback, you know, do the participants in this product want to see the debt traded on a secondary market? I think that's something that we'll definitely introduce on the permissionless side probably later this year. But, you know, is that something that these guys want to see in the permission side? And, and perhaps that's something that, you know, that we add in based on, on that feedback. So that's the code roadmap. But yeah, the interest is there and, you know, we're, we're excited for the launch. 
So walk us through the secondary trading aspect. I mean, this sort of speaks to the maturation of the credit market with sort of more esoteric, you know, products trading as a derivative of it. How does this sort of make lending in crypto more robust if you have the ability for lenders to redeem CP tokens, whether there's liquidity there? Yeah, so the CP token represents, you know, the liquidity that you've provided to the pool. It accrues the interest and, and it also, you know, represents the credit profile of, of the pool's borrower. So in a way, it's kind of like a digital bond certificate, if you like. So you can see the secondary market working, you know, very similarly to the secondary bond market. But of course, here you would have, you know, instant finality as opposed to sort of T plus three days trade settlement, etc. Now, the main benefit for lenders is, you know, if you are in a pool and for some reason you need to withdraw your liquidity, let's say that pool is in high utilization or if it's in prime, it might be on a fixed term pool, you would then be able to turn to the secondary market for liquidity. Now, the bid might be a little bit lower than, you know, par value, of course, but this is exactly how it works in the secondary market, in the sorry, in traditional markets. And what that gives us then is the ability to see where the market prices the risk. If we've got a lot of sellers in bids, you know, in the secondary market, of course, that's going to, you know, impact the price and yields will go up. And this gives us a lot of information on where the, the market prices the risk of that, of that particular borrower. And then you can obviously compare that to what you see through the real-time risk ratings. And as I said before, then you can also start to think about other products that can be built on top of that, like you know, credit derivatives. And it also just provides more information for the market. I mean, these are things that are covered day in and day out on Bloomberg and CNBC. Key financial metrics that you can glean from the bond market we don't really have in crypto. and so. It, puts us at a relative disadvantage in terms of how we can assess risk, how we can understand where the risk is and where the market might be heading. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what it does, you know, and then you can start to visualize, you know, those credit spreads, you know, these issuers will have different ratings and you can compare that to, let's say, the risk-free rates, which, you know, in crypto, maybe we we look at the, the over-collateralized protocols for that, or maybe something else, some of the benchmark emerges as the risk-free rate. And, you know, it's just building that market. You know, I think, like I said earlier, it doesn't happen overnight, but these are the things that we need to see. It's interesting. I guess we're going to have to, at some point, hire a crypto version of a bond reporter here at the block, maybe in a few years to, you know, <laughs> cover that market. I heard so. So what about exchange trade pools? That's coming in Q4, according to this Medium post. How do those fit into the evolution here? Yeah, so the product here is we saw a lot of lenders. So last year, we had around about, I think, 12 borrow pools from one point. And we saw many addresses lending to all of the pools. So the problem for that lender is that they're having to make a separate transaction for each of those pools. So we wanted to create a product that would allow lenders to diversify their liquidity in a single transaction. Initially, we were calling this thematic pools, diversified pools. We, we came up with this new name, which I'm not sure if it will stick or not yet. But the reason it's called exchange traded pools at the moment is because the, the concept is kind of very similar to how exchange traded funds are created and redeemed. And this will allow lenders to come to Clearpool and either, you know, lend to a pool that will distribute the liquidity evenly across all borrowers or, you know, in the future when we have, you know, let's say multiple 
double A rated, multiple A rated, and so on, you'll be able to, you know, to distribute your liquidity based on a, a mandate of, of each of these these types of pools. So that's a really exciting product. There's nothing else really like it. And and I think the model that we've, the mechanism that we've designed for this would also be very interesting for sort of other sort of real world asset tokenization products, because the main issue that you'll always have with that is liquidity. You know, where can you sell your tokenized real estate assets, for example? But that ETF model, obviously, is extremely liquid in, in traditional markets. So that's something that we hope to create with these pools as well. Understood. Well, I know that, you know, your background is in repo. When do we have a, a decentralized DeFi repo market in crypto? I think you were the head of repo at First Abu Dhabi Bank. Yeah, I was, yeah, for, for APEC. Well, and I think, you know, we kind of have have it a little bit, you know, already, you know, if you think of the way that Compound and Aave work, it's kind of similar to a, a repo. You know, you provide one asset and you get a haircut on what you can borrow. But to do that in a credit environment, we need the secondary market first. So that, and then I think, again, it's just, it's just, we have to follow this process and this roadmap. And once we have the, you know, the secondary market and those tokens are tradable in the secondary market, it'll be easier to, to build a repo market. So, I mean, these, these are all things that we, you know, we're, we're thinking about, including also like credit derivatives like CDS. You know, we want to be able to provide as much risk management capabilities for lenders as possible. And, you know, once we have all that sophistication, again, as we said earlier, it, it attracts more and more of the sophisticated users into the space. All of these things are a constant topic of conversation between myself and the rest of the team. And, you know, we'll, we'll get there. Rob Alcorn of Clearpool, thanks so much for taking the time. Where can we learn more about what you're working on? So the website is clearpool.finance. Twitter is clearpool.fin. You can pretty much see everything there. Links to our medium, etc. Yeah, it'd be great if all of you guys could follow us there. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for taking the time. And The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.